You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are the one true living God. Lord, that you have given us your word. We thank you, Lord, that that you can communicate everything that we need, Lord, and you've done it through your word. Lord, we thank you for your wisdom and your understanding, Lord, your, your infinite knowledge. Lord, just how great and grand you are. Lord, as, as we consider your greatness and your glory, Lord, this morning in our text, we're going to see idolatry. And Lord, we pray, Lord, as we consider your greatness and your glory, Lord, that you would reveal idols in our hearts. Lord, open our eyes to see the things that we cherish and we hold above you. Lord, not, not just trinkets and figurines and statues, but Lord, the good things that you've blessed us with that we've placed high in priority. Lord, we thank you for your word. I thank you for Sean. I, I ask, Lord, you would speak to us through him. Lord, as he's prepared, you would, you would give him, Lord, the words to speak and convict us. Lord, thank you for your mercy and your grace, Lord. None of us have arrived, and you are patient, and you are kind, and you are loving, and you know our frame. So we thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Acts chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent to Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. 
When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of, Ephesus, of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open now, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Aaron. You guys may be seated. Thank you for standing for the reading of God's word. Uh, we're back in the book of Acts, as you all know. After today, we'll take a break in Acts and focus on two additional sermon series, uh, first is the sermon series called One Big Story, as I've been saying the last couple weeks. Uh, the foundational idea of One Big Story is that we will explore the grand narrative of Scripture. So, by looking at the creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration, these particular categories, right? We're going to explain, I'm going to explain how all these terms, what are all these terms, and how do they kind of fit together. And I think that's going to give us a good picture of what God is doing to save rebellious sinners to himself. So that's the first sermon series. One big story. Let's get, take the 30,000 foot overview of the scriptures. After that, leading up to the elections. It's going to get contentious, people. God, government, and the gospel. We need to prepare our hearts for what's coming in November. You all have opinions. I got opinions. <laughs> if you sit me down privately, I'll tell you. Um, many of you will vote. But the most important thing is, how do we prepare our hearts to vote if you choose to do so? And how do you prepare your heart for the next day? Because <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen. And if, if you got that like back to the future almanac or thing, let me know. It would be, be much easier to prepare our hearts, but I'm guessing you don't. So I just want to prepare our hearts for, for voting and then what's going to happen the next day because we all know it's going to be chaos. If history is any lesson, <laughs> it's going to be crazy. Okay, I'm going to quickly pray and just dive in to today's message. 
Heavenly Father, once again, we come underneath your word, knowing and believing it is authoritative, it is infallible, and it is trustworthy. And we want you to instruct us this morning as we continue to move through the book of Acts. We trust by the power of the Spirit you are indeed at work. And so we thank you for the good work that you have done and continue to, to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes I wonder if, if Christians know what they have signed up for. Here's what I mean. If it's easy for you to be a Christian, you might be doing it wrong. I'm saying it again. Because that's like one of those slap in the face type statements. If it's easy for you to be a Christian, you might be doing it wrong. Well, we, what have we seen in Acts? As Christians verbalize their love for Jesus, as Christians turn from being spoon-fed idols by the culture and turn to Jesus and worship Jesus and Jesus alone, what have we seen? Pushback. There's persecution. But if you keep your faith under wraps, if you're quiet and compliant, if you do, not, if you do the opposite from what we read in Acts, what will your life be like? No one is going to bother you. No one's going to bother you. No one is going to come at you because of your faith. Just be quiet and stay compliant with the culture, then you'll just then you'll be just fine. You won't be obeying Jesus, but at least no one will hurt you or harm you. Earlier in Acts, in the face of persecution, Peter said this, And now, Lord, look upon their threats. He was being persecuted. So, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants boldness to continue to do what? To speak your word. So I know that there are threats. I know persecution is coming, but I want to be bold, O oh God. Peter was doing it right. In his commentary on Acts 19, R.C. Sproul says this. It's a brilliant statement. It's one of those run-on, uh, long run-on <laughs> sentences, but it's really good. He says this, In our day, with the rigors of political correctness, and you all know what that's about, with the rigors of political correctness, the idea of confrontation and bold, bold critique of forms of paganism and idolatry are politically incorrect. We have become, in many cases, at least in America, he continues, the church quiescent as we just stand by and watch our own generation give themselves, as the people of the ancient world did, to idolatry. If you want to stay safe from the culture, feel free to keep your faith politically correct. You will be safe from the culture, but at what cost? Parents, if you're not courageous in your faith, do you think your children will be courageous in their faith? If you have a job, how will your coworkers hear about saving faith in Jesus without you being bold and courageous to tell them? Christians need to live as citizens of heaven
and not prisoners of its own society. In my estimation, now is the time for the church to step into the fray of the cultural confusion. Turn on the news, social media feed, there is confusion. Now is the time for Christians to be thoughtful about sharing the gospel. Now is the time to present our society with an alternative view of the world because we know the prevailing view of our society is not leading to lasting hope and peace. Do you think that's what's going on right now? No? It's leading to chaos and confusion. The idolatry in the world is leading people toward destruction. But Christians have a message of freedom. We have an alternative perspective that sets people free from idols. For centuries, the Christian worldview has been colliding with other worldviews, uh, religions, and faith traditions. This is nothing new. What's going on right now in America, what was going on in Acts 1, uh, the book of Acts all the way to Acts 28, is nothing new. One of the reasons why collisions take place is the gospel exposes idolatry. It reveals what a person loves more than anything else. It reveals the, go- the gospel of Jesus Christ that is, reveals what a person loves and desires. It exposes what a person cherishes most. The gospel even exposes idolatry that is propagated by society. It exposes the lies that people believe because of false religion. Because of our PC culture, the church, I think, in some part, has pulled back on talking about Jesus when it actually needs to press in on talking about Jesus. The church must step up and move into an uncomfortable space of the PC culture because it's where idolatry abounds, and idolatry abounds because people are worshiping idols. What we see in today's passage is as the kingdom of God continues to move forward in the first century, we see not everyone is getting on board. People do not want to give up their idols. Some people are seeing the consequences of the world being turned upside down and they aim to rebuff the movement. And there are times when a person is not on board with the gospel. And when that happens, he or she takes action. Change is not welcome. People speak up, push back. And what do we see in today's passage? Riot. And so Dateline, we are still in Ephesus. Luke, the author of Acts, spends an unusual amount of time retelling the events and circumstances in Ephesus. Last week, we saw how the gospel is more excellent than lies. We saw how the gospel exposes lies of selfish, itinerant ministers. We see how the gospel is greater than the occult. I mean, we ended last week seeing how the power of the gospel caused a bunch of former occult members members to burn the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of dollars of books about magic. From last week's sermon, you would think the entire city of Ephesus was like on the gospel train. Well, not so much. The latter part of Acts 19 shows us as the gospel moves forward, evil 
evil still pushes back. Many people are not on board with the gospel train. What we see today is many people want the gospel train to be derailed. But why the sudden pushback? If we saw all the great things that the gospel was doing in the first part of Acts, why all of a sudden do we transition where people are just pushing back again, saying, no, we don't want that? After all, I said last week that Ephesus was a very spiritual city. It would seem like a comfortable place to practice your religion, whatever your religion might be. What is it about Christianity that causes some people to bristle? I'll tell you, and this is what almost caused Ephesus to see an all-out riot. Christianity makes exclusive claims. Christianity says there is one God. Not many gods, but just one God. And to know the one true God requires faith in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Further, once the one true God has made himself known to a person, the one true God demands complete allegiance and worship. There is no room to worship other gods or idols in Christianity. What we see in the first century is not different, not any different than today. Ideological uh, Systems and thought systems exist that directly oppose religion and any notion that a person should be dedicated to Jesus and Jesus alone. What would have been accepted is you want to worship Jesus, that's great, but you got to bring in all these other gods as well. And the Bible says no. Christianity says no. You worship God and God alone. Even the name that Christians were given in verse 23 of today's passage is emblematic of the exclusivity of Christianity. We read Christians were called the way, kind of a nickname of sorts. Where did this name come from? Well, Jesus is recorded as saying in the Gospel of John, you might remember, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. His followers are now called a part of the way. Jesus isn't one of many ways to know God. He is the way. Jesus is the only way. These exclusive claims rubbed a whole lot of people the wrong way in Ephesus. Just as the claim rubs a whole lot of people the wrong way in America today. One of the people who was rubbed the wrong way in Ephesus and wanted to see the gospel train derailed is Demetrius. We're introduced to him for the first time in the book of Acts. Demetrius is a successful silversmith. His financial success, in part, is due to the creation of, of selling, uh, creating and selling shrines of Artemis. Again, Artemis is the Greek god of fertility, the goddess of fertility, widely popular um, in the first century, that the following of Artemis was scattered throughout the entire world. While the main temple of Artemis was located in Ephesus, there were actually 33 more temples located throughout the world. So it was a worldwide movement. It was at these temples and shrines where people would bow down and worship. But the temple of Artemis in Ephesus, it was actually kind of like the real deal. Again, one of the seven wonders of the entire world. 
worshipers and tourists would have traveled to Ephesus to see this amazing temple. It's from those who traveled to Ephesus that made Demetrius a whole lot of cash. These tourists were like bankrolling his business. Uh, the business of Demetrius would be like Christians selling trinkets in Jerusalem or, or Muslims selling uh, goods and shrines in Mecca. The business relied heavily on tourists and people taking pilgrimages to these ancient cities mattered to these businesses. But if the tourists stop coming, the business suffers. In light of Demetrius' trade and the exclusive claims of Christianity spreading all over Asia, verse 26, we see the conflict brewing. There are several reasons why Demetrius saw Christianity as a threat. First and foremost, he saw Christianity as a financial threat, right? That's obvious. After gathering the entire guild or silversmith union, he says this in verse 25, Men, hey fellas, guys, we're in this together. You know from this business, we have our wealth, right? We have made a whole lot of money off the worship of Artemis. We can't see that stop. Have you noticed that in our culture, if you want to rile everyone into a tizzy, you just say, those guys, they want to take your money away from you. And everyone's like, no, we don't want that. So it was with Demetrius. Perhaps his concern was valid. Maybe he saw a dip in profit because as people were being saved, they stopped buying idols. What's ironic is that he was profiteering off making idols and the wealth he received from the idols was actually his idol. <laughs> Demetrius' God is money. So the gospel exposed the sin of idolatry in his heart. It's worth noting that John Calvin said, the human heart, your human heart, my human heart is an idol factory. It seeks to worship someone or something else. It's just a matter of what kind of idol a, pers a person is worshiping. For Demetrius, his primary idol was his money, was his cash, his bank account, his 401k, the stocks he's invested into. In his speech to the silversmith union, Demetrius continues in verse 26, As you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great number of people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Demetrius is really clear. Christianity is booming, and because it's booming, his business is not booming. It's in danger. And while his primary concern is financial, Demetrius does mention a critical distinction between Christianity and most religions. Here it is. You cannot fashion God out of wood, stone, silver, or gold. You cannot create something and say, look, I have fashioned God. John 4.24 says this, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. You cannot take a material and create a god or a goddess. Uh, many years ago, I had, I had taken a class on Eastern Orthodoxy, the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, in this class, several students brought in what they call icons. 
These icons were pictures of the Christian faith. Oftentimes they were just pictures of Jesus, or their version of the picture of Jesus. Through the icons, one was to pray and worship to God. While fascinating to learn, I certainly did not participate in the charade. At another point, the entire class went to an Eastern Orthodox service. If you've never been to an Eastern Orthodox service, it is one of the most sensory overload religious experiences you could ever witness. Your ears would always hear someone singing or someone speaking. Your nose would smell incense. Your hand would be touching their version of a hymnal. At several points, you would sing. And what about your eyes? The church service is lit up like a Christmas tree. And you would not be able to avoid the icons that were located all over the church. In my opinion, those in the Eastern Orthodox Church approach the line of idolatry. Now, I'm okay with Christian art. Um, I love watching and seeing Christian art. Um, Churches have crosses. That's fine. I love stained glass windows. But I take exception if anything we physically create becomes the mediator between a person and God. Listen, over the years, I've, helped, I've been helped my, by my uh, friends who are Eastern Orthodox theologians, especially in the realm of early church history. But in my opinion, we should never come close to the line of idolatry. I do not think Paul is confused when he preaches against the use of any object that supposedly becomes a mediator instead of Jesus. It's an idol that has no power. Paul makes it crystal clear to the church in Corinth when he says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered by idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. That's what he says. You might think it exists, but at the end of the day, it doesn't exist. And he continues, And that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on the earth, as indeed there are many, quote, small g gods and many lords, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for all things exist. Here's the long story short. This is Paul, the point Paul was making. Worshiping idols is ultimately pointless because they're powerless. The other reason why Demetrius was all hot and bothered with Christianity was his patriotism to his culture. He winds down his speech by saying in verse 27, And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that may even be be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the whole world worship. His financial wealth centered on the idol of Artemis and his cultural identity also centered on the goddess Artemis. He has a sense of loyalty to Artemis and he was worried that the glory of Artemis would come crashing down throughout the world because of the spread of the gospel. Demetrius is a man, an example of a man, who was holding on so tightly to his idols that he actually began to riot. Before looking at the riot, and then how the riot was quelled, it is worth saying this, that Christians never respond to their faith when it's under attack through rioting. 
the gospel has not and will never advance through the hate of individuals. The gospel advances. The kingdom of God moves forward through love, through love of God, through love of your neighbor, and yes, as we read in the gospel of Matthew, through the love of your enemies. That's how the kingdom moves forward. Non-peaceful response, this non-peaceful response of Demetrius is inconsistent with the ways of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's what happened after Demetrius completed his speech, right? His, his big speech to the silversmith union. He and his union friends took to the streets shouting, Great is Artemis! The statement was repeated over and over. Verse 28 it said, verse 34, and then again in verse 35, a mob began to form and confusion prevailed. The mob found a a couple of followers of the way, right, and dragged them into the Ephesian outdoor theater, which had the seating capacity of 23,000. The theater exists to this day. I mean, just imagine the scene. Demetrius is the, the prominent businessman. He obtains a large following. They, gla- they grab the two closest Christians. They're Christians. Grab them. Let's take them. The crowd drags them to the stadium that seats up to 23,000 people. For perspective, the Wells Fargo arena, arena in downtown Des Moines seats about 16,000. So imagine this theater. What is going on in Acts 19 is drawing a lot of people and it's turning out to be a massive demonstration. Here's what I find illuminating about this passage. Many people in the crowd did not know what they were doing, but they went along anyways. Look at verse 29. And I, I, I know you're all like thinking to yourself, I saw that on TV, I get that. I'm not getting political here. I'm just trying to state what we see in God's word. I'll let you make any connections. Verse 29. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the whole assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Like, what are we here for, guys? They're, they're, they're proclaiming great as Artemis, but at the same time they're like, Why are we doing this? What are we gathering for? Demetrius and his buddies may have known, but no one else could figure out what was going on. Here's what I think happened. The confusion created a context where individual rationality went out the window and the singular mind of the collective mob took over. Uh, in, late, in late spring, I read a book entitled The Crowd, um, A Study of the Popular Mind. It, it's one of those academic books you don't pick up in, in Barnes & Noble. Someone recommended it. I decided to read it. It seemed fascinating to me. Um, read it you know, late spring. The author is a Frenchman named Gustave Le Bon, and he wrote the book in 1895. I never thought I would use this book as an example in the sermon, but here we are. The book helped me make sense of the confusion that often exists when a crowd turns into a mob. This book helped me understand the psychology of the mind of a crowd. One of the points he makes is this. What rational individuals will not do on their own, they might do in a crowd because he or she has suspended objective reality. 
Here's a, bu- a bit of what he says, direct quote. In crowds, the foolish, ignorant, the envious persons are freed from, their, from the sense of insignificance, insignificance and powerlessness and are possessed instead by the notion of brutal and temporary but immense strength. What a person will do in a crowd is different than what a person will do by acting as an individual. I mean, I just think about this. Take it out of the crowd context. Think about you're at a sporting event, right? And like you're, you're looking down at your phone. Let's say it's a football game. You're looking down at your phone, and you're, the, you're part of the home team, and all of a sudden the crowd roars. You look up. You start cheering. You have no idea why you're cheering. You just know everyone else is cheering, so you just kind of join in. I do that when, when we watch comedies. Everyone starts laughing. I don't get the joke, but I laugh anyways. It's not shocking that in a display of utter confusion resulted in the seizure of two disciples of Jesus Christ, Gaius and Aristocrats. Here's another fascinating, fascinating statement by Lebon that sheds light on the mob in Acts 19. He says this, judgments accepted by crowds are merely judgments forced upon them and never judgments adopted after discussion. What Lebon says, I'm saying it wrong because I don't got a French accent, Lebon, what Lebon says is what we read in verse 32. For the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. There was no discussion. When confusion exists and the crowd adopts a slogan with no understanding of the details, as we see today, chaos ensues. The slogan of the crowd in Ephesus was, as we know, great is Artemis, but it seems no one knew why the slogan was adopted to begin with. Remember, the reason why the crowd was created is that the gospel was pressing on the idolatry button of individuals in Ephesian society. For those who turned from their idolatry to Christ, they were experiencing freedom, as we saw last week. For others, they did not want the Christian faith to move an inch further in Athens. Two different perspectives of the world are just colliding. It does not seem like this is going to end well for Christians until the local government steps in and takes control. You just can't make this stuff up, man. We read in verse 35 and 41, the town clerk steps in to de-escalate the situation. He tells them three points. Three points. Hey, he tells the crowd this. Hey, Artemis, guys, is in no danger of going anywhere. Calm down. Chill out. Artemis is here to stay. He's trying to placate their concerns. That was the first thing he said. Second thing he says is, the people who belong to the way, the Christians, guys, they've done nothing wrong. They've done nothing sacrilegious or blasphemous to the goddess Artemis. No, stop it. He says one more thing. If you want to charge the Christians with an accusation, guess what? We have a judicial system in place. Go through that. You could take them to trial. I, listen, I don't try to get political. 
But it's just like, man, the Bible is just so relevant all the time. It continues to instruct our minds and our hearts and helps to understand the chaos in the world. That's a good thing. We should be grateful for that. It's not always the case, but it is worth noting that the local government came through and restored order to this chaotic situation. The town clerk even makes the point that those who were rioting should be the one charged with the crime. You're going after them? Well, actually, we need to be going after all of you. Look at verse 40. For we really are in danger. This is the town clerk talking. We are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And then when he said these things, the crowd finally dismissed and went away. <laughs> okay, so that's, that's the story about the time when two worldviews collided in the city of Ephesus. One worldview says, put away all your idols and worship the one true God. The other worldview says, let's open up the floodgate and worship all kinds of idols. Let them in. So what are some takeaways from this particular story, right? First takeaway is the gospel makes demands on a person who follows the way. The gospel makes demands of people. What we see in this passage is that the gospel demands 100% allegiance to worshiping Jesus. No idols, only Jesus. Following Jesus is an all-or-nothing proposition. You're either all in on worshiping Jesus or you are entirely out. There is no middle ground. There is no a la carte Christianity. I like this part of Jesus. I don't like that part of Jesus. It's all or nothing. I had this conversation re- recently with a friend who was doing the a la carte Christianity, and I basically said, no, you're the all in or, or all out. She's like, I don't like that. She's not even a Christian. It's either all or nothing. Here's what you you should be thinking about as you consider how to apply this passage to your life, especially if the gospel does make demands in your life. In this passage, we see how Christian ideas come into conflict with other religious, religious ideas. Yes, Christianity exposes the idols of the world. But Christianity also exposes the idolatry in your heart. My heart, your heart. You must continue, continually evaluate um, the to temp, your temptations toward idol worship. You've got to be honest with yourself. Ask yourself the hard question, what controls me more than Jesus? Answer that question, and you'll likely find an idol. So that's number one, the gospel makes demands. Second, the gospel is distinct. Believing the good news of Jesus Christ is unlike any other faith, tradition, or religion. It is also exceptional and distinct that key Ephesian leaders tried to run Christians out of town in this very spiritually diverse city, right? Very spiritually diverse except for Christianity. Let's get them out. That's how distinct and unique it is. But we also see how the distinct nature of Christianity has drawn so many people to faith in Jesus Christ. So Christian, what you possess is a message more significant than a statement from your favorite political candidate. 
Christian, what you possess are words that give life, hope, and lasting love. You possess a special, special message that is timeless. You have a message that the world needs to hear. It is so distinct. And you have the great privilege to declare it. So the gospel is distinct as well as it makes demands. Number three, the gospel is confrontational. Confrontation, go, confrontations go two ways, usually. A confrontation can cause a person to dig in and reject the claims of the confrontations, or a confrontation can result in real lasting change. We saw both in Ephesus. As Christians, we are called by God to share the gospel, but Christians, generally speaking, just are not confrontational. The gospel is confrontational. Our job is to, in a sense, set the message loose and let God do the work. Let God do the work. As I've said before, Christians are tools in the hands of God. Christians are freed from the confrontation and the pressure from saving another person. Let God do the work. Fourth, the gospel always wins. The gospel always wins. The gospel makes demands. It is distinct. It's confrontational. And it always wins. The victory of the gospel is one of the most dominant themes, as you've seen, throughout the book of Acts. The kingdom of God continues to march forth as the gospel is preached to the people in a culture shackled with idolatry. One soul at a time, the gospel advances. The gospel advances when people like Paul are beaten and put into prison, and it advances when a reasonable government leader puts down a riot, saving the lives of Christians. In both stories, which we've seen in Acts, the gospel wins. It continues to move forward. It continues to march forth, and we have the great privilege to join God in his great mission. So the gospel makes demands on our lives. We've seen that in Acts 19. The gospel is certainly distinct. The Ephesians knew that. It is confrontational. We see that in Acts 19, and yet the gospel always wins. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.